trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table again and again Welcome to Grassroot Ohio Conversations with everyday people working on important issues here in Columbus and all around Ohio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and today I'm talking with Alex Cole and Megan Hunter, activists, advocates, protecting the Ohio River and supporting communities fighting an ODNR, Ohio Department of Natural Resources, permit to allow the Colorado-based Powhatan Salt Company, funded by a New York private equity fund, to drill into natural salt caverns along and under the Ohio River to store highly flammable and explosive natural gas liquids. Alex Cole is a native of Fraser's Bottom, West Virginia on the Kanawha River. He has lived his whole life in the Chemical Valley and knows firsthand what it's like to live on a river that is polluted beyond repair. Alex now works as a community organizer for the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition fighting the proposed Appalachian Storage Hub, trying to prevent what happened to the Kanawha from happening to the Ohio River, and protect the drinking water source for 5 million people from the petrochemical industry. Megan Hunter is a staff attorney with Earth Justice. Her work focuses on challenging new oil, gas, and petrochemical buildout in the Appalachian Ohio River Valley. Before joining Earth Justice, Megan was staff attorney and outreach director at Fair Shake Environmental Legal Services and partner at her own firm, Hunter & Hunter LLC. In this capacity, she worked with communities in Ohio living with the ills of rapidly expanding oil and gas development, proposed petrochemical buildout and legacy coal and steel mill pollution. She has represented individuals in defending their land and health from pipeline and well pad development, and she successfully litigated a Clean Water Act citizen suit that ended the practice of oil and gas produced water discharge to the Mahoning River. Megan graduated with honors from Vermont Law School, where she served as senior managing editor for the Vermont Journal of Environmental Law, and she holds a Master's of Science in Applied Economics from Cornell University and Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Policy from Barnard College. Welcome, both of you. Yes. So let's go straight to the horse's mouth. The funders of the Mountaineer Storage Hub's website, Energy Storage Ventures, LLC, is a portfolio company of New York-based West Street Energy Partners, LP, a private equity fund managed by the Merchant Banking Division of Goldman Sachs and Company, focused on natural resources investments, formed in 2016 to develop, construct, and operate bulk hydrocarbon storage facilities with its lead project being a natural gas liquids facility in the Salina bedded salt formation in the Ohio River Valley. At full build out, the project is estimated to have a working storage capacity of 3.25 million barrels and is expected to expand as the market demands. Last summer, sorry, last September, ODNR denied Mountaineers permit and now they're back. Why are you fighting this permit? Let's start with you, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fighting this permit because I'm concerned about the uh, water quality in the Ohio River. And uh, I'm concerned about the water quality in the Ohio River because it is the drinking water source for 5 million people. Uh, 
this 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 facility would be upriver from countless towns. I, I live closest to Point Pleasant and Galpolis. Uh, also, uh, OVEC, our offices are in Huntington, which gets part of its drinking water out of the Ohio. But Cincinnati and Louisville we are downriver from this or some of the bigger ones. So, uh, yeah, I'm doing this for uh, a, a concern for, for my community and my region. This, this could be catastrophic, but the salt storage isn't just one facility. Its purpose is to create a larger buildout of petrochemical plants along the Ohio River. Uh, and that, that uh, buildout is known as the Appalachian Storage Hub. Uh, the industry and our politicians really want to create a center for petrochemicals in the Ohio River, and they have explicitly stated that is because they are afraid of climate change in the Gulf, where a lot of this production happens already and currently for the United States. A lot of it is in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, the hurricane that hit Houston a few years ago really scared them, and they're they're looking to run away for the hills. And I'm afraid the industry will beat the people in that runaway for the hills situation. So yeah, I, I want Appalachia and the Ohio River Valley to be a vibrant community that can feed the residents in this climate change situation and not, you know, a poison toxic chemical waste land. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's the short answer as to why I'm here. How about you, Megan? Yeah. So, you know, we're there, we're here to, to support that fight. Um, so Earth Justice is actively engaged in combating further petrochemical build out, um, both in the Gulf and in Appalachia. Um, so, you know, Alex mentions, you know, the, the, the desire to, to target Appalachia for this build out first and some of the reasons that they're trying to do that. Um, and, and so it's really important that communities have the resources they need to to fight back. And so we are bringing those legal resources to the table. Um, and in terms of this, this specific permit, um, I think it's important to note, we fought really hard to get the opportunity to even be able to challenge this permit. So the first time around, ODNR was just, they didn't require public notice that's required by law, and they just pushed these permits through, they approved them. And so the community was never really given the opportunity to be involved in this project the first time the permitting was going through. And we, uh, we sued them to get that public comment period and to get that opportunity for public involvement. And now here we are um, with, with Powhatan, um, now Powhatan Salt Company now applying again. Um, and, and it's important that we raise our voices now. I'd like to ask why you personally are taking this on. I mean, what what is it that just like really resonates for you? I mean, water issues got me started in activism. Um, I was, I, my grandparents had a place up on Lake Erie and it was when the blue-green algae was taking off. And then it segued into seeing the amounts of massive water that it was um, turned toxic from fracking. And it evolved on and on for me. Personally, why are you in this fight? Let's start with you, Megan. Yeah, so I grew up in coastal North Carolina. I did not grow up in Ohio. Um, and it was after law school that I moved to Ohio uh, for a job, actually. Um, and I lived in Akron uh, for five years. And during that time, 
Um, I met so many people in Southeast Ohio, um, Northeast Ohio as well, whose homes were being threatened by fossil fuel infrastructure and by the industrialization of a rural landscape. So what, what happens with fracking? It's not just about a well, right? It's about the industrialization of a rural landscape. Um, and I identified very much with that threat to home um, because I think that's something, you know, we, we all know. So even though I had come from somewhere else, um, that idea of the place that I loved and the place that was, you know, everything that, that nourished me and supported me, um, how it could be taken away by uh, a power s- structure that is really designed to not even give you a voice in that that process. So be that looking at imminent domain issues with with pipelines, you know, running through organic farms or um, or well pad development right near someone's home, or um, you know, waste infrastructure, oil and gas waste infrastructure next to an elderly um, a, a nursing home. All these things, like you really felt the threat um, coming into people's lives. And I I wanted to advocate um, to to help communities defend against that. But also in terms of petrochemicals in particular, which is the, the current threat facing the Ohio River Valley, for me, that does loop back to home. That loops back to what happens to the plastic, right? What, where does it go? And it is, it's it's destroying our oceans. We're eating it all the time. I have two young children. That was another real transformative moment in terms of seeing ma- microplastics now on the, the fetus side of the, the placenta. Um, so this plastics issue is something that really gets me because I think it, it impacts us all. It, and it's a real opportunity and, and indeed the moment is so critical that we engage on the plastics fight right now and you alex personally yeah i mean i i feel like i was born an activist uh <laughs> in west virginia i mean my my mom and grandmother fought a big high tension power line that went through our farm before i was even born and, and i live on that farm now and surrounded by power plants, coal burning power plants, you know, they're starting to uh, die off one by one, but there's still five coal burning power plants. You can see from the top of my hill that power the whole Midwest and Southeast uh, big ones, you know. Uh, But in terms of petrochemicals in this fight, uh, I grew up, as you said, on the Canal River. And for, I, I assume most of your listener bases in Ohio, Ohioans would recognize that if they traveled on I-64 through Charleston, you know, going to the beach or somewhere down south. Uh, the Canal River has been a seat of the petrochemical industry as far back as the 1800s. Uh, Union Carbide got its start here and built the first ever cracker plant in the world. And uh I grew up in a period of time that was sort of interesting in that petrochemical history uh, because it was after the Bhopal incident. Union Carbide leaked a bunch of MIC in Bhopal, India around the time I was born. And there was a huge downturn in the industry in the United States after that fact. And Union Carbide uh, kind of fell apart and now it's become Dow and all this. But I grew up surrounded by this chemical industry and driving past these chemical plants and smelling the nasty smells and 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 people who drove through nitro on I-64 uh, for the last 30, 40 years can tell you what it used to smell like. But we're still living with the legacy of that. A lot of the chemical plants have shut down and been torn down. Some still are around. But uh, FMC 
particularly the company FMC, was dumping dioxin and PCBs in the river in nitro for decades. And they filled the sediment of the Canal River with PCBs and dioxin. So now every time it, it a heavy storm or a low flow event or even river boats go up and down, they stir up PCBs and dioxin out of the settlement sediment, particularly between the Winfield Locks and Dams, which is where I went to high school in Winfield, uh, and the, the interstate bridge, I-64. And because of that, the river is undrinkable and, and does not meet the minimum requirements set by the EPA for drinking water intakes. And I grew up downriver from all that. So none of the municipalities on the Canal River can take water from the Canal River. And this is a big river. I don't want you to be thinking of like the New River and Rapids and stuff. This is a river that a lot of people see it and think it's the Ohio. That's how big it is. It's the largest river inside the borders of West Virginia. And it's the population center for the capital is on the Canal River. And seven years ago this month, the one water intake that is left for the city of Charleston and surrounding areas was contaminated by a chemical spill. And overnight, 300,000 people, including everybody in my family that's still around here, was left without water. And it's just ridiculous. We're, we're a very wet place. We're a very wet state. There's plenty of water, but they, they mountaintop removed everything to the south of the river. And now they're fracking everything north of the river and the river is full of chemical waste. And it's just obnoxious. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. And I don't want to see that same thing happen to the Ohio. The Ohio is already at risk of that. It's already one of the most polluted rivers in the country. And now I'm watching chemical companies make plans all up and down the river, skipping from one side to the other. You know, one will be in West Virginia and the next one will be in Ohio, the next one in Kentucky. And, you know, they're using the river as a chemical waste dump, standing from opposite sides of the bank, opposite sides of the river on the banks and acting like they don't see each other. And I saw a need there to tie it all together and tell the story and keep an eye on these things because even the EPA isn't in so many ways. The river is a border between three different EPA zones. So not only are we dealing with three different bureaucracies at the state level, we're, we're dealing with three different bureaucracies at the EPA level and everybody's acting like they don't see each other and everybody's patting each other on the back for economic development. But when these when the fracking gas is gone and these these companies are gone, you know, we're left with cleanup costs that are literally insurmountable. Can't be done. This is Carolyn Harding with Grassroot Ohio. And today I'm talking with Alex Cole and Megan Hunter. They're both working hard to protect the Ohio River and the communities that will be impacted by the Mountaineer Storage Hub. I'd like you to tell folks what do you know that most folks know about this Mountaineer natural gas liquid storage project. What specifically, tell us about it and why we should fight it. Let's start with you, Megan. Yeah, they, thanks, Carolyn. Um, so there's there's so there's so much. So so first of all, this this facility is located uh, or proposed to be located in Monroe County, Ohio. So about ten miles south of where they are also proposing, they being industry, petrochemical industry writ large, um, where PTT Global specifically chemical um, is proposing to construct its ethane cracker plant um, in Dilly's Bottom, Ohio. So it's about ten miles south of that. And Mountaineer NGL Storage would um, is saying they would provide the ethane 
to the ethane cracker plant for for the ethane cracker plant to then make 1.6 million tons of polyethylene plastic pellets each year. Um, so so when we were talking about the natural gas liquid storage, it's the storing of a feedstock uh, to the, then be used in plastic production. Um, and that feedstock is coming from fracked gas in the region. Also, I guess just to you know briefly explain the project, the first stage of the Mountaineer and GL storage project would be done by Powhatan Salt Company. And so they don't exist until they were created, or they didn't exist until they were created uh, to manage brine that is created when you build caverns to store natural gas liquids underground. So Powhatan Salt Company would use Ohio River water, millions of gallons a day, just under 2 million gallons a day is what they're saying, to then inject that underground to mine out the salt and create three caverns that then Mountaineer NGL storage would use to store ethane underground. Um, and so right now we are challenging Powhatan Salt Company's permits, or we are we are encouraging um, folks to participate in the comment process for challenging um, the Powhatan Salt Company permits to create those underground wells. And then I'll, I'll pass it to Alex to speak more about the, the impacts of NGL storage in the region and why there are a lot of concerns with this site in particular, given its location. Great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what people don't know, uh, every, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot there. And I, I don't blame people for not knowing. You know, I've lived in this world for two years now trying to understand and wrap my mind around what amounts to a ridiculous idea. Uh, and I, I, you know, I find it very interesting, the site they chose, particularly because it's a history of extraction and exploitation of the region. The, the site is an old salt mine. They used to do the salt solution mining in the last century. Uh, it is also, there's a strip mine on the site. Uh, and where they're drilling particularly used to be uh, coal washing ponds right next to the river. And there are underground mines as well, both pillar and shaft and long wall mining, which long wall mining, for those who aren't aware, is literally where a machine goes through and sweeps the whole coal seam out of the way and they just let the top collapse. And now they want to put uh, you know, the storage facility, these caverns under all that, but a lake of salt water on top of that, which is is one of, you know, it's not the scariest, you know, worst case scenario of like explosions or cave-ins or whatever, but it's just crazy to try to build a lake on top of sub such subsidence issues. And the entire area, including one on top of the strip mine, they have fracked. There are fracking wells everywhere. There's a frack. If you stand where they want to drill uh, the the salt wells, there's a fracking well right on top of the hill in Ohio, someone directly across the river on the West Virginia side. So, and we've had tremendous amount of confusion because there's not a lot of details in the permits as to certain aspects of like, are they fracking the roof of this thing? Are they fracking underneath this thing? According to the ODNR's website, they don't even truly know the extent of some of the coal mines 
in the area. So I'm, I'm, I want everybody to know everything about it all the time, of course, but I'm more concerned about what the ODNR and the company and these so-called experts don't know because we don't know. And that's what's happened in other places with uh, catastrophic failure of these things. All of a sudden, gas starts pouring out somewhere else miles away and turns out, you know, there was an old salt well there in the 1880s. And now all of a sudden, oopsie, didn't know. So, yeah, uh, there's there's even the aspects of what happens to some of the salt water at the chemical plants on the West Virginia side, too. Uh, you know, I just don't I don't need to go into all the weeds, but every aspect of this is potential catas- potentially catastrophic. But even running as proposed, it is a nightmare for chemical pollution and a nightmare for climate change. So, you know, I don't even get to the climate change aspect of this or the plastics aspect of this often because we all know that's bad, you know. But but yeah, there, there's some very extreme dangers here. And I, I want everybody to be aware of that before we agree to this. I question who's making the money from this project. I'm wondering, are the Ohio people benefiting from this project and who is benefiting? Do any of you know who's getting the money from this big, huge Appalachian storage hub, starting with the the Powhatan Salt Company? Who would like to take that one? Yeah, I I can start. Um, I I mean, in terms of this specific project, they're saying 12 permanent jobs is all that will come out of it. So, you know, this isn't going to be some huge job maker. They have said 200 construction jobs. So, you know, but we also know industry has, you know, in the past inflated some of these figures. And in terms of making money, I think that, you know, Ohio River Valley Institute, um, if you're familiar with them, is doing some great work on will anyone be making much money off of this endeavor? I think the markets are showing us that this larger build out in this region does not make sense for many, many reasons. And I think that the markets themselves are why you have seen a stall of the Appalachian storage hub coming to fruition. I mean, it's been quite a long time now, same with PTT Global, that people have been waiting for the this economic savior of this build out and more and more it appears that this isn't going to be an economic savior for anyone so we should not be spending our time on it and our energy and our state resources on it but instead should be moving on to something that could be an economic long-term solution for the region alex did you want to add no, I mean, you covered it, and Carolyn, you covered it earlier. Goldman Sachs apparently has some interest in the project. Uh, but the Appalachian Storage Hub as a whole was kind of a Hail Mary pass at the end of a fracking boom to try to extend the boom. <laughs> Coming from West Virginia and talking about boom and bus cycles, uh, you know, where do you even start? But what it really comes down to is they overdrilled. Gas prices went down. There was also some uh, global market issues with OPEC Plus and 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 Russia and and uh, was it Brazil fighting over a price war for gas. And now the company, you know, the industry wants to sing this sad sob story that it's all COVID related, but the, you know it was collapsing before all that. But what this all was for was for the fracking industry to create a secondary income source for themselves. Natural gas, the methane, the part that, you know, we burn at home for heat was tanking because they overdrilled and there was too much of it. 
and the next best thing they could go for was plastics. And they're like, we got right here in Appalachia, we got all this wet gas, which means it has natural gas liquids in it. So they, instead of shipping it all to the Gulf, which is what they're doing currently, wanted to create some of these facilities here. Unfortunately for them, and unfortunately for the world, really, a lot of that market was soaked up by Southeast Asia and China. So uh, really other places beat us to the punch as well as the Gulf. The Gulf expanded greatly, but it never really did make sense to make these cracker plants here for, for multiple reasons, for environmental reasons more than anything. But uh, yeah, the fracking boom is bust and this was their Hail Mary and it's going bust as well. We have two minutes. I'd like you to tell folks, justice warriors, activists, Black Lives Matters, LGBTQ, civil rights educa- educators, women's rights, indivisible folks, poor people's campaign, 15 now activists, why they should help stop this permit and how they stop this permit. Let's start with you, Alex, quick, short. Why and Megan, how? <laughs> yeah, why? Because, I mean, this is a global issue. This isn't just about the Ohio River Valley. And uh, as Megan mentioned, they tried to get this in under the radar and without public comment. So, you know, we, we need to make our voices heard. And I'm sure that plenty of those people live in Cincinnati and Louisville and Huntington and all these places downstream. So they're affected directly. Thanks. And how do we do it, Megan? Yes. Um, so right now the public comment period is open with ODNR. Um, so you can contact them uh, and you can oppose it by submitting comments that way. I would recommend going actually to OVEX website or co- to Concerned Ohio River Residents website for a list of talking points and exact information about how to submit comments. I would also recommend calling the ODNR and requesting an extension, a 60-day extension of the comment period so people have time to make their voices heard and requesting a public hearing. All right. Those websites are going to be on our Facebook page and also with all the um, social media recordings that we do of this event. Thank you so much for your hard work we're going to do everything we can to to support you, and um, we'll fight the good fight. Thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you. In addition to our Friday 5 p.m. broadcast on WGRN.org, Grassroot Ohio will now air on Sundays at 2 p.m. at WCRSFM.org, 92.7, 98.3 FM Columbus, and at 4 p.m. on WEJPLP, 107.1 FM Wheeling, Moundsville, West Virginia. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back. I'm down.